You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. So I got a, a question for you as we continue our series on Esther. You ever had a record scratch moment while reading the Bible? Like you're reading and everything seems to make sense, then you have a, I can't really make the sound, but the record scratches and you think, what? What? I had one of those last week. I was reading Deuteronomy 20 and it's this gripping scene. Before the Israelites would enter battle, a priest would come out and address the soldiers. And here's what the priest would call out. He'd say, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, God is literally going to fight for you. Let's go. And then the priest does something weird. He says, okay, remember, God's going to fight for you, but have any of you recently built a house and not dedicated it? Okay, if, you, if that's you, let that man go home, lest he die, and another man take the house and dedicate it. All right, has anybody recently planted a vineyard? Uh, you should go home and care for it, lest you die in battle. And, and another man, care for it. Okay, any newlyweds here? You can raise your hand. Any newlyweds? Okay, you all go home. And be with your wife, enjoy her for a little while, lest you die in battle and then another man marry her. What's the priest saying? God will fight for you. God will win. But you might die. Right? (laughs) What's the implication? That I can be completely in God's will. And yet, from a human standpoint, experience the worst possible outcome. Even as God establishes his kingdom. It is tempting to believe. It is very tempting to believe that God's way is always the safest way. That when God is at work, everything just sort of falls into place. Every obstacle is removed. Life just flows. In fact, that's how you know that you're in God's will is that things go smoothly. Things seem certain. And it's almost like you know what's going to happen because God is in it and it's going to work. I cannot tell you how often I've had people talk to me that way. I knew it was God's will because everything just fell into place and it was easy. That is not a biblical idea. Is God's way the safest way? Well, yeah, in an ultimate sense, sure. And yet in Scripture, God continually calls his people to take risks, real risks. In fact, those who risk greatly are often the ones used greatly. And that's just so clear throughout the book of Esther, isn't it? That you see these characters, for all of their flaws and compromises, one thing they're willing to do is risk when the time is right. And God rewards their risk and delivers, their, delivers his people. You know, Creekside, like, we can throw all the money and strategies and things in the world 
at whatever. You know what it's going to take to be used in the Bay Area? Risk. You're going to have to take some risks. There's no way for us to fulfill our calling apart from risk, whether it be financial, physical, emotional, mental. No strategy prevents us from that. We must take risks. That raises some questions, doesn't it? Those are the questions I want to talk about this morning. Two questions, actually. When is risk right? Because we can think of when risk is wrong. When is it right? And when is it just stupid? Second, why is risk right? What's going to motivate me to take risks for the kingdom of God? Those are the questions we're asking as we look at Esther 8, where Esther again risks, and now Mordecai risks. That's what we're talking about. But if we're talking about risk, we need God's help. So let's ask for it. Pray before we go to his word. So, Spirit of God, you have inspired the words we're going to read. Would you illuminate our minds to understand them and soften our hearts to receive them and strengthen us to to believe and walk in them. And Jesus, follow you, even though it will require risk. Thank you that you have things well in hand. And because you do, we can risk. Pray it for your sake. Amen. So so first question is this, when is risk right? Because we know when risk is wrong. When is it right? Not all risks are right. They're not. It's not inherently virtuous to risk. For example, one of my favorite documentaries is Free Solo. Have you seen Free Solo? It's amazing. Documents the climber Alex Honnold. He free climbs El Capitan in Yosemite. First person ever to just walk up to a sheer 3,000-foot cliff and climb it without a rope in under four hours. When he reached the summit, I cried. I don't cry very often. It was I cried because just the human achievement involved in doing this is mind-blowing. I was so inspired. You know what I was not inspired to do? Honey, kids, I've got a new mission in life. I'm free climbing that thing. And if I perish, I perish, right? That's not courage. That, for me, that would be stupid. That's stupid risk. I do not want my kids to grow up saying my dad died climbing a rock. (laughs) Just being honest. Risk is not inherently virtuous. We need to understand that. In fact, that's the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of dumb risk. The prudent sees danger and hides himself. The simple go on and suffer for it. So avoiding risk is often the wisest path. When is it right? Well, Esther can teach us something about this. So here's where we're at in the story. Uh, If you've been with us, you know Haman. He's the villain in the book. He writes this edict that ordering for the extermination of all the Jews. Mordecai, Esther's foster dad, learns of it. He's undone. He comes to Esther, who's the queen, and says, you have to use your position as queen to undo the edict. It's a huge risk for Esther to do this, as we've seen. And last week, we saw how the story unfolds, and, and, and Esther hatches this brilliant plan, and she invites Haman and the king to this series of of feasts, and eventually, at just the right time, 
She reveals Haman's plot to the king and through an improbable series of events, right? That was last week, an improbable series of events. The king comes to believe that Haman wants to kill Esther. He orders Haman's execution. And now on the very same day as the tables are getting turned, he now honors Esther and her foster dad, Mordecai, for their loyalty to him. And that's where we pick up the story, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Oh, how the tables have turned, right? In ancient Persia, it was customary for traitors to have their property confiscated, so that's what happens to Haman. He was a traitor against the king. The king takes his property, gives it to Esther, presumably because he thinks Esther is the the big victim in this whole thing. Keep that in mind. Esther is now out in the open about things, right? She'd been hiding her Jewish identity. Now she's revealed her Jewish identity. And she reveals this special relationship she has with Mordecai and, and how much he means to her. And so remember, the the king has already honored Mordecai for his loyalty. He clearly favors his queen. And given all these factors, kind of what happens next is inevitable. Mordecai gets Haman's stuff, and he's elevated to Haman's position. All of which is foreshadowed earlier in the story. And at this point, everything seems to be going great, right? The end. Happily ever after but there's a lot left in the story. So so what hasn't been resolved? Well, the conflict in the story hasn't been resolved yet. Look at what Esther does. Then Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Now, this is surprising, isn't it? This is what I would expect Esther to do the first time she comes to the king, fall at his feet and beg for him to undo the plot. But that's not what she does. Why? Why does Esther wait till now to make her true feelings about the Jews known? Because this is a huge risk for her, isn't it? The whole thing. Haven't we seen that throughout? That that Esther is courageous, but she is super calculated in everything she does. Remember, the odds are stacked against her. She went to the king uninvited, that's a capital offense, right? And now she has to convince the king to overturn an edict sealed with his signet ring that's going to make the king look really bad, it might not even be possible, and she has to disclose her Jewish identity to the king and her allegiance to the Jewish people, and as we've seen, that would have been absolutely perilous for her to do. And so we've seen over the last few weeks how calculated she is. Her strategy is is brilliant. She throws these banquets. She gets Haman and the king in the same room. And, And when Esther asks the king to repeal the verdict, what does she do? She frames Haman's edict against the Jews as a threat primarily against who? Her. So, So think about this. Esther has to tell the king, oh, by the way, I'm a Jew and I've been hiding that. That's a problem. When does she do that? At the exact same moment she says, Haman is trying to kill me. That's smart, isn't it? Because if you're the king, which revelation is more shocking? My wife happens to be Jewish or my second in command is trying to kill my wife? That's the one that would stick out to me. And so Esther's strategy works. 
When, he, when she appeals to the king, his husbandly instinct is, is provoked and he kills Haman. Here's the problem. It sort of worked. Because the king deals with Haman. He thinks Haman's the problem. Doesn't realize, no, Esther really wants the edict undone. Her concern is bigger than just her own life. It's, it's the Jews. So really, the conflict hasn't been resolved. And now Esther has no moves left to make. Do you see that? No moves left to make. She's just got to be totally out in the open. I want the Jewish people saved. I need you to fix this. She already has a conference with the king, but now she requests to speak. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. This kind of looks like the first time Esther came to the king, doesn't it? She needs to talk to him again. Again, he gives her favor to do that. And now Esther makes her plea, and she moves from calculated to, to convicted here. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are, all, who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, Esther is calculated again, okay? Think about what she does. She doesn't say repeal the law, does she? She says, have the letters revoked. Basically, here's what Esther knows, right? That it's really hard to undo anything in Persian law. She already senses that. So she doesn't ask for the law to be repealed. She just says, hey, can the post office take care of this? Can we just revoke the letters, right? Like, we got this big postal system. Maybe the post office could just say, our bad. We didn't mean to send that out and take it back, right? Not technically repealing it, just like, just make it go away. That's the first smart thing she does. And then look at how she frames her request. It's exceedingly deferential with the king's fragile ego. She says, if, four times, if it's good to the king, if it please the king, if it would, right? And then she leverages her position because the one trump card Esther has is Esther. She knows the king really likes her. And she says, if I am pleasing in your eyes, you know what she's doing here? You know what, she, if you're married, you know what she's doing. If you really loved me. Some of you, you've done that before, right? That's how, that's how Cashel gets back rubs, right? It's not rub my back, it's do you love me? Right? That's, that's what she's doing here. She's being very tactical. She can't be clever anymore, though. She just has to come out and reveal her true loyalty is that it's to Israel and Israel's God which means fundamentally it's not to the king. And, and, and that's what she gets to. Finally, in verse 6, she moves from calculated to convicted. How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? King, I'm not going to be okay if my people aren't. You might be able to protect me from this edict. My people are not going to be protected. And now Esther has finally moved to just laying all of the cards out on the table. There is a time to be clever and calculated. There is a time to lay your cards out on the table with people and just say, this is how I think, this is how I believe, this is what I think we need to do, and there's a risk. There's always a risk in that moment when you are brutally honest about how you really feel, isn't it? Right? Right? 
I tried to be calculated when I started dating Cashel. I was calculated because I was 100% into her and I was 75% sure she was into me. And I, have a, I had a terrible history of misreading women, um, just completely. So I tried to be clever, and I came up with a plan to make her put her cards on the table before I put mine on the table. So we were watching TV over her apartment one night, and her roommates had all gone off to do their homework. And I said, so do you usually, you know, hang out with guys like this at night? <laughs> In your apartment, watching TV? Is this just what you do? She looked at me, and she said, I work night shift. My schedule's weird. No, that's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, no, Jeff, you're special, and I like you. And she was saying, uh-uh, you got to tell me first. And I had to. Thank God, I did, and I was right. It's the one time I didn't misread a woman. It worked out. There is risk in being honest, because now you risk rejection, you risk pain. There's a time when you have to stop being calculated and just share the gospel. Stop being calculated and just speak a word of correction. Stop being calculated and just say, here's how I honestly feel. Right? That's what Esther's doing here. And the king's response is not reassuring. There's not an immediate reward to this risk. Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. This is such an ambiguous statement. It's so ambiguous because there's two ways you could look at what the king says. He could be saying, Esther, look at all I've already given you. It's clear that I love you. I'll give you my own authority and you can write whatever you want. Just remember, it can't be repealed, but you can do whatever you want with my authority to fix this problem. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it would be, look, I already gave you Haman's house. I gave Mordecai his authority. Look, I'm washing my hands of this. You go do what you want. You go put my imprimatur, my authority on it, but remember, whatever you write can't be revoked. Subtext, remember, Haman's edict can't be revoked either. Esther loves, the, the king loves Esther. He does not love the Jews. He could care less. He doesn't want to get entangled in this because that's, that's his MO. We've seen that already. <laughs> I don't want to make decisions. You just go deal with this. Has the problem been resolved? No. They have all the resources in the world. They have the king's authority. They have money. They have all these things to resolve it. But the actual edict can't be revoked, right? And so what are they going to do next? Well, we'll get to that in the next point. But what I want you to see is this. You know, Esther takes a risk. And in one sense, the risk here is bigger than the initial risk. Because once it's clear that the king is going to protect Esther, Esther's in the clear. She's good. Her life is going to be spared. The king will see to it. She has to keep prodding and prompting at the king until he will do something about people he doesn't care about. She has to keep risking and keep risking. Raises a good question, doesn't it? When, when is it necessary to keep risking? 
When is it necessary to go out on a limb for the sake of something bigger? All right, we know when risking is wrong, right? We've said that. Think of lots of times it would be dumb to risk. There are times where it would be stupid to risk, like if you're disobeying the Bible, okay? God never calls you to obey one command in a way that would cause you to disobey another command, right? So just keep that in mind. My, my risk here causes me to disobey something over here. That's bad risk. But when is risk right? Here are four questions that come from Esther we can ask about when is it right to risk. First, what's my motivation to risk? Is this about other people and their welfare, or is it really about me? Here's the thing. You can romanticize risk, and then it becomes about you being the hero in every situation. Is that Esther? No. It's not Esther at all. She's already got all the honor, all the fame, all the glory she could ever want. This is all about the welfare of her people. And that's a question to ask you. Any, anything that you want to risk, is this about approval from other people? Is this about my own honor, or is this for the benefit of other people? Right? There have been Christians who have been far too risk-averse throughout church history. There have been Christians who have been nuts throughout church history. Early in the church's history, people would try to get martyred, killed for their faith, because they thought it was so heroic and there would be bishops rebuking people for that. That's foolish risk. What's your motivation? Is it for your glory or is it for the benefit of others? Here's a good question. Obligation, what does love require in this situation? What did love require for Esther in this situation? If she really loved the Jewish people, what did it require? That she not stop. That, that she take risks. She, she couldn't consistently love God's people and not take the risk. Love is risky. It is risky to love. Do you know how I know that? The way Jesus defines love. Luke 10, parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And he tells a story about two guys who would be in ethnic conflict with each other. And one guy gets robbed in a very dangerous place, and the other guy, who would be his natural enemy, stops and helps him on a very dangerous road and takes him to shelter. Does that sound safe? Why is that love? Well, God puts you in my path, so I have to do something. The Good Samaritan didn't do everything for the person, but did what was needful in the moment. Who does God put in your path? What neighbor, what relationship where you are in the best position to help them, what does love require? Just what, is, what does love require for me in this situation? Fourth, third question is just deliberation. What would indecision mean, right? To not decide is to make a decision. If I don't act in this situation, if I don't speak that word of correction, if I don't share the gospel, if I don't make this hard leadership decision, if I don't do that, what could happen? right? It, most of life is not this is risky and that's not risky. It's a trade-off between different risks, right? That's what you got to ask. What, what could happen if I fail to act in this situation? Final one to ask is, what, what does my role entail? See, there are some decisions that only you can make. If, if, if you're in a marriage, only you can make decisions about the welfare of your marriage. If it's your kids, you're a parent, right? If you're a boss, if you're in authority over people, there's going to be a hard decision. Only you can make it. We've already talked about that. For Esther, I mean, what other Jew is going to take the risk? <laughs> She's in the position to do it. So you have to ask, what, what has God stewarded to me? 
Think through a risk in your life and weigh it through those four filters. And hopefully it becomes clear, is this a risk worth taking? Now, I say that and you go, Jeff, that's a very frustrating answer because it doesn't make it clear whether I should take the risk. And you know what? You're right. It doesn't. That's why it's called a risk. It's walking by faith, not by sight. If it's blindingly obvious to take a risk, well, you've kind of lost the risk element because the whole point of a risk is you don't know the outcome. We need a deeper reason to take risks for the kingdom, to take calculated risks, and that gets to the why, the deeper motivation, and it's this. We serve a God who never takes risks because he always knows the outcome. He always wins. He always gets his way. You might take this way, you might take that way, you're going to end up in God's way. His victory is secure, and because we worship a God who doesn't take risks, we can. And we can take them for him. And that's what we see in Mordecai. So, here's the problem. You've got all the power in the world, and you've got an edict you can't undo. How do you undo an edict you can't undo without actually undoing it? That's the problem here. <laughs> got it? Here's what they come up with. It took a while, as we'll see. It took a while. Here's what they come up with. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan of the 23rd day. Keep that date in mind because the author's winking at us again, okay? He's winking at us. Just keep that date in mind. Dates are significant. Here's when they issue the new decree. Here's what it says. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to deny, annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Keep going. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Okay, what do they do? You can't understand this edict until you go back to chapter 3 and read the original edict because they copy it almost word for word. They take everything Haman said about exterminating the Jews and they flip it and say, oh, by the way, that's edict number one. On the same day, the Jews are allowed to gather. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves. Uh, but then Mordecai goes further. Not only that, any enemy of the Jews, uh, the Jews can slaughter them and their families. And that's now the will of the king. That's extreme, isn't it? That, that's extreme. 
And it's that last part that we stumble over, right? Especially as liberal, tolerant, individualistic Westerners. Like, is Mordecai really ordering the Jews to kill any people group that opposes them? To kill women and children and non-combatants? Some people have said, no, that's not what Mordecai is authorizing. That's, that's not what it actually says. That's what it actually says, okay? You can't, you can't resolve it that way, okay? Because there's symmetry between Haman's edict and Mordecai's. That's the whole point, is that there's symmetry. Now, what are we to make of that? Is Mordecai right to write this edict? Well, remember, just something to keep in mind when everybody in the biblical narrative, the heroes aren't always heroic. We're dealing with compromised characters. We shouldn't assume that Mordecai's decision is, is a righteous one because the author doesn't tell us. A at the same time, I, I want us to kind of get in the minds of the people in the story. We, we referenced David Foreman's little book on Esther a few times in the series. He does a really good job of helping us think through the dynamics of what's going on here. Why would Mordecai write the document this way? Why would he write it as a word-for-word -word denunciation of the first edict? Well, think about it. Who is he representing? That's the first question. Who does Mordecai represent? The Jews, and also, with the signet ring, the king. So when the empire hears this edict, who do they think is talking? The king. This is the will of the king. Just like with the first edict, they thought that's what the king wanted. Who is this edict addressed to? Not primarily the Jews. It's going out to the satraps, the governors, all these mid-level officials. Why is it going out to them first? Well, here's the deal. A skirmish is about to take place throughout the empire. And if you're a mid-level governing official, what do you really want to know about this skirmish? Whose side is the king actually on? Right? Because we've got the armies, we've got the police. If things got out of hand and we have to intervene, we want to know who the king wants to win. Right? So what if Mordecai had just framed it as, oh, well, you know, the, the Jews can defend themselves. Of course they can. Right? The Jews were going to defend themselves one way or the other. But to say the Jews can assemble an army and be just as extreme as the anti-Jews were going to be to them, what does that communicate to all the governing officials? The king's will has what? Changed. The king wants the Jews to win. Right? That's what Mordecai has to convince the known world to think. Do you see why he writes the edict? the way he writes it. Now, we don't know how precisely the Jews followed this. We'll see in chapter 9, they definitely kill combatants. They don't plunder people's property, which they were authorized to do. Why not? We'll find out why next week. Stay tuned. But, but here's the point. Mordecai, it's brilliant. He has to change public perception. This is about war games, right? This is about the perception that you don't want to mess with the Jews because the king is on their team right? That's why he sends them out so fast with the best horses. He's trying to change all the public perception. That explains what Mordecai does next. This is awesome. Then, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. That's a weird time to do this, isn't it? Has any battle been fought yet? No. The battle is still to come. Why would Mordecai start parading around before the battle's even fought? Why? 
Who's going to win? Us. We're going to win. This is what he's doing. This is psychological warfare. Michael Jordan once pulled up to a Lakers game, and he saw Byron Scott hobbled. He said, Byron, you guarded me tonight. He said, no, I sprained my ankle. Michael Jordan said, well, who's, who's guarding me tonight? He said, Anthony Peeler's going to guard me. And Jordan looked at him and just said, 50. 50. Meaning, I'm going to score 50 points. He scored 54. That's what Mordecai's doing here. He's coming out before the battle and saying, we're going to drop 50 on you. Right? And here's the thing. The risk, right? Because does the king care about any of this? He could care less. They're just faking it. But here's what the king wants. How does everybody respond? The Jews had light, next slide, and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. <laughs> For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I want to play with Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> I'm on their, no, I'm on their team too, right? It worked. It worked. That's how you undo an edict that can't be undone without actually undoing it. Now, Mordecai is confident because the king's on his side. We know why he should be confident, right? Because the king of kings is on his side. And we knew all along God was going to turn this because God's going to preserve his people. The author winks at us. Look at what he does here. Here's how we know this was going to work. Do you know how many days passed between the first edict and the second? Seventy. Of course it was seventy. Because 70 is the number of completion in the Bible, and it was 70 years in exile, and 70 has huge symbolic significance. And here's what he's saying. The edict that was hanging over you was done because God, wink, wink, right? God's never mentioned, and yet we know, just looking at that, God's going to overturn this thing. The time is up. God's going to do something. And that's how we know that this battle, it actually belongs to the Lord. Why can Mordecai be confident? Why can the Israelites rejoice before they even fight a battle? Because they already know who's going to win. That's why you can take a risk for the kingdom if it's to advance God's kingdom and his will. Even if it doesn't turn out well for you, it's going to turn out well. Because God never risks. He can't risk. He already knows what's going to happen. He already knows how the plan's going to work. And that's what motivates us. See, because if God is not in control, then you should avoid all risk, right? <laughs> You're the general, the manager of the universe. Good luck. You have to determine every eventuality, every contingency, and that's what some of you do, and that's why you can't sleep at night. Because at some level, you think you're the low-level GM of the universe, and that things won't actually work out unless you make sure they work out. But, but here's what Mordecai knows and the Jews know, is that God's going to work this out one way or the other. And so we can sleep, we can eat, we can rejoice like people who know that God's not going to fail. Um, it's going to take risk, family, to accomplish the mission of God. Risk rejection, risk pain, risk hardship. It's going to take risk. Here is what is so pernicious about caution and being careful. You will always feel right in the moment making the more cautious choice. 
because there's sort of an invincible logic that says, well, I avoided what could have happened over here. Better not to reach out to that person. They, I, I don't think that they would have liked it. Better not to follow up and see how they're really doing and ask some uncomfortable questions because they might reject me. Better not to share my opinion in this situation because it could lead to, to ill will. Better not to make that decision the hard one. Do you see the problem? You can always justify that kind of thinking until you get to the end of your life. And you look back and you realize nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I never took a risk for the kingdom. I always played it safe. And guess what? You took the biggest risk of all, which is missing out on all the things God would have done through you if you had taken a risk. It's going to take risk. Like, if you want to see someone come to Jesus in the Bay Area, come on, man. Seriously? Yes. But... Look, there is no strategy to make that happen. If there was, I'd be using it. There's no, there's no brilliant plan. You know what's going to take? You. You're the strategy. You. We don't have a better strategy as Creekside than you. You inviting people to community groups. You reaching out, trying things to reach people in those community groups, individually, and you know what? You're going to fail at a lot of them. That's fine. I, I fail at the wrong things. I mean, fail at the right things. Fail at the right things. Don't succeed at the wrong things. Right? Because our confidence is this. We serve a God who can reverse anything. Who can save anyone. Who can overturn things that look unoverturnable. I made that up. That's this chapter, isn't it? Do you see the reversals? The last person we think to replace Haman is who? Mordecai. He does completely. In, in chapter 4, when we learn of the edict, there is fasting and weeping and lamentation among the Jews. Now it's feasting. In chapter 2, Jews hide their identity out of fear of the Gentiles. Now Gentiles are hiding their identity out of fear of who? The Jews. They're just faking it. I'm a Jew too. Sign me up for that team. And now when the edict goes out, the first edict caused great confusion. This one creates what? Celebration. God overturns it all. That's the point. He turns it. And if you don't believe me, look at Jesus. That's the unsolvable problem from our perspective. God issues an edict. He's not some crazy tyrant. He's a just God who says, he who sins will what? Die. He who sins will die. How do you fix that? We're all sinners. How do you reverse something that's unreversible? God says his own son is our representative so that he who sins does die in Jesus and Jesus takes the punishment. And then God reverses our fortunes by putting our sin on Jesus and putting Jesus' righteousness on us. That's the great reversal. If God knows what he's doing, even in situations that feel impossible, and, and that's the gospel, that's what gives us confidence that we can risk. Because even if we lose in the short term, we win in the long term for the kingdom. All right, let's pray.
So God, I pray that we would be wise and shrewd and yet we would know when the time is right to take the risk. Whether it's sharing about you, Jesus, or speaking a hard word to someone or just telling people are longing for their life or serving someone when it's costly or loving a neighbor, would you lead us, Spirit, and would we be willing to say yes? Even if it costs us time or money or energy or reputation or whatever we think we're losing, Jesus, would we see that the investments made for your kingdom are eternal and in you we cannot lose? So God, help us to be willing to take risks for the kingdom, Jesus. It is the abundant way to live. Um, God, as someone has said, it's, it's better to lose our lives than to waste them. And I pray that we would see, Jesus, your sacrifice for us and that it would motivate us to take great risks for you because in you we are eternally safe. Pray in your name, amen.